Words matter more than we imagine. They matter in more ways than we imagine. And they're not just vessels for transporting a thought from one person to another. They are the thought. Welcome to the Renovare Podcast, a place for honest conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and my guest today is award-winning professor and author Marilyn McIntyre. A number of years ago, I sheepishly asked the chair of the English department at the university I taught if she would tutor me and help fill in some of the gaps I had in my education. It was a big step for me, but I couldn't have asked a better person. Over the next months, Kimberly Moore Jumanville patiently invited me into her love of language, her love of words, and it was great fun. When our work together came to an end, she gifted me with the perfect book, Caring for Words, in a culture of lies. It would immediately become one of my top 10 all-time favorite books. And today, I get the privilege of interviewing the author, Marilyn McIntyre. I spoke with Marilyn from her home in California. Marilyn, to be honest, I've done over 200 podcasts and... um, I don't know if nervous is the right word, but uh, excited. Maybe it is nervous. Um, I love your work and this book in particular. And I'm thrilled to see they're doing it. Uh, they just came out with a second edition. It does feel like a book with some staying power to it. I'm curious, where did your love of words begin? Well, I always have to go back to my the dinner table in my childhood. Uh, it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized that not everybody sat around the table with their families and talked and argued and had opinions. And I had the advantage of a three-generation household. My grandmother was an English teacher. My mother was a teacher. Uh, my father was a book dealer. They all loved words, and so I think I came by it quite naturally. And my grandfather was a storyteller from way back. They were Southerners, and he always had a story. I realize now what a rich legacy that is. And I also remember my grandmother, who had a wonderful sense of humor and also a lot of opinions, just gently correcting me and saying, I'll try that sentence again. And I so appreciate that in retrospect, that she cared enough to really listen to not only what I had to say, but how I put things, and would just kind of um, encourage me to listen to my own words and see if I could make them a little more articulate. Was it gentle correction, or I mean, was it? Um, it was. Yeah, it wasn't to. No, put it you often down came with me. a kind of sweet laugh, like you know you you know better than that. Let's try that again. So her sense of humor was part of it. And my, both of my parents read to us. And also it was a, my parents were missionaries and 
it was a household in which we, of course, all went to church and they read from the King James Bible. It's not at this point the Bible I would use for out of preference for various kinds of Bible study, but I must say for a compendium of poetry in English and poetic language, and certainly as a resource for a lot of the phrases that we still import into writing and conversation, it's just immeasurable. So um, being asked to memorize Bible verses has left me with a little trove of very rich, elusive possibilities. Explain a little about how caring for words is a moral issue. Absolutely. Words are the instruments we have for not only conveying facts and information, but for framing things that are true. And I think that part of the practice of poetry is to remind us that words don't have singular meanings that you can just nail down, but that every word has a field of meaning, and that when you use them, you are creating a kind of magnetic field, if you will, of possibility. And clarity doesn't mean eliminating all ambiguity. It seems to me that clarity means uh, that you can point to what is at the heart of a thought and what are some of the most obvious implications. But I do think that words work concentrically. And I love what I have come to understand about the Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew understanding of words, that every word comes out, every utterance comes out on the breath of life, and that words are made of living material themselves. And as I think about it, every word is a little packet of energy. So if you put them next to each other on a line, they do something to each other, as in a chemical reaction, which is what poetry calls our attention to, that a phrase does something even before it grows up to be a sentence. Chemical reaction, a synergy between between the words. How about words as art? Yes, they are obviously an art form. As I've said, when you put two words next to each other, something surprising can happen if you take the measure of what has become conventional and what lies just outside that groove of conventional usage. And so to work in ways that recombine familiar words into somewhat unfamiliar combinations is to wake people up to all of those little interactions between one word and another. But I want to go back to your question about why it's a moral issue. So words are what we have for framing the truths that we live by and articulate for each other. But I also think words are a way of protecting those truths and making sure that they don't get eroded or misapplied or literalized in dangerous ways. It seems to me that conversation, the long conversation that we're in as a public and, in, and also the intimate conversations we have are ways of continuing the flow of language that creates a discursive environment we inhabit. It's like caring for the soil, for what grows in the soil. And if words begin to erode, or we use fewer and fewer of them, it's like the loss of biodiversity, 
or, you know, species extinction, which we're facing now. I am dismayed and have been over the last decade or so at how diminished the general public vocabulary seems to have become. If you listen to anybody from college students to pundits on TV and radio, it's, you know, it's easy to just go into the ain't it awful conversation. And I don't particularly want to do that. But I do think that without being elitist or dismissive of people who speak deep truths in simple ways, it seems important that there be at least some of us who pay attention to the language and keep sharpening it and honing it and using it with precision and care so that we can both model that for the wider public, purvey something of the joy of language, and make the fine distinctions that call people's attention to nuances that get missed if you lose the vast gray area between the hyperboles at one end and the other. And you take this beyond writing and poetry, but just in normal conversation. In conversation, right. Uh, Certainly you can be more intentional about language in writing because you can fool around with a sentence for quite some time, as you know, because you write. Uh, And that can be a lot of fun. Just trying to rewrite one of your own sentences two or three ways can show you a lot about what shifts when you move the words around. Um, But I think in conversation, and I'm not a very good model of this because I get rolling and speak more quickly than I intend, but I really appreciate people who leave some pauses and open spaces in conversation so that we can hear each other's words. I have several friends who do this, one in particular I'm thinking of, who will just pause long enough between sentences so that something registers. And you hear the silence the way you hear a rest in music. And it just allows the words to open up a little bit into their field of possibility. I also think that in conversation, we can call each other's attention to the words we use. Oh, what did you mean by that? Or pausing over our own words to say, and I'm aware that when I use that word, it's kind of got a charge to it because it's become politicized. The word Christian, for instance, is one that's very hard to use now with integrity in some circles because I want to hasten to say, but there are some meanings of Christian that I really don't ascribe to, so let me explain. So some words have become so much the property of one or another partisan group or bandwidth of believers that we have to reclaim them by having a little bit of meta-conversation around them. Let me pause over this word and say something about it before I just let it sit there. I'm hearing a couple of things, and one is the importance of letting words breathe. I I noticed this, and you mentioned music, and as a musician, sometimes it's what you don't play. It's just as important as what you do play. And then the other piece of, I often run to this where words fail me or let me down. Like, I just can't quite say it the way I'm, I'm, I'm intending to say it. And so I think what I'm hearing you say is to help clarify or tease out some of these words that have just have a lot of baggage to them? Yes. And that teasing out or clarification can be a very rich part of the conversation itself. 
I think that part of any good conversation should be about the words themselves. So that there's something, there's a kind of little feedback loop that when you hear someone say something, you don't just go after the claim or the proposition, but to practice saying to yourself or someone else, it's really interesting how you put that. And I wonder what you mean by that exactly. Or offer a different term. When you say liberal, is that the same thing as progressive? Or how would you make the distinction? When you say conservative, does that always mean Republican? Or how do you separate that term from party politics? But just to sort of pull forward the words can sometimes be surprising for people because I think that we get hurried along in efforts to make the points we want to make and sort of ski on top of the words instead of dropping down into them. So one of the directions I give students about both reading and writing is to go in before you go on. But somewhere in every paragraph, just find a place to pause and go inward rather than onward. And the inward is to look at what you just said and look back at it, say something about it. I notice I just did this. That brings up something else. Allow yourself to digress and come back. And that adds a whole layer of awareness to the paragraph or the conversation. A sort of self-awareness of what I'm saying or writing in a space of pause. Right. And of course, that could become obsessive, but anything can. But I think a certain level of self-awareness also goes with having a a lightness of touch and a a sense of humor. Like, I notice I just said that. (laughs) And I'm not sure that what you heard is exactly what I meant. So let me back up. Mm -hmm. But to do that is to acknowledge that we're both involved in a creative act that has immediate consequences and possibilities and surprises built into it. How do you use words as a spiritual practice? Well, I'm sure that you are familiar with the ancient practice of Lectio Divina, right? Mm -hmm. So just because you have listeners, I will briefly review that it's the practice that St. Benedict taught his monks in the 5th century to take a very short passage of scripture, to hear it out loud, listening for the word or phrase that speaks to you in some way. Someone said that shimmers. It just And it could just be a prepositional phrase, like in the garden. It could be a single word like my, and the Lord is my shepherd. And when you found the word or phrase that sort of comes forward for you, do you sit with that as your point of entry into the passage? And then you hear it again, asking, what is that about? What does that word open a door to? How does it open an avenue of reflection? So allowing associations to come up, and then a third reading, you ask more intentionally, what's the invitation here? As I reflect on how this word summoned me, what am I being invited to that's pertinent to 
the life I'm living right now and the concerns I'm bringing into this day. And then I love the fourth reading. They do a fourth reading, which is to rest in the text as a place of habitation. But so as a spiritual practice, it means really noticing and believing that a word can be a door that opens to the presence of the Spirit who makes it a living word. This comes back to the notion that words are made out of breath, right? But that any word, and it, I don't think it has to be a sacred text. I think you can bring this practice into the into reading poetry or reading the morning news if you want to, but just listening for what what speaks to me here. Or if you want to make it a prayer, speak to me here. Show me which phrase might give me an opening into reflection I may need to do to get some direction for the path I'm walking today. So that quality of paying attention to a word itself as almost a, having sacramental value, that's words as a spiritual practice. And then I think the practice of poetry, reading it and writing it, is to slow down over words and to notice the power of a phrase to awaken you. To bring words and spirituality together is to recognize that every religious culture has its sacred texts, right? And Judeo-Christian culture has this rich, complicated text that's full of so many different genres. And as I have said to younger students pretty often, if God wanted to give us a computer manual, he would have done that. But it isn't that. It's words used in such a vast variety of ways, mysterious ways. It doesn't just give us a text that you can nail down. So in a way, the nature of the text itself says is an invitation to enter into a variety of ways of hearing words and living with them and cultivating them and crafting them for God's purposes. I'm making a connection here. One of the most haunting passages to me in Scripture is that picture of God breathing into the nostrils of Adam. And right, so that when we speak, right, there's something there. There's something there. Just talking about words, I think for some folks, particularly those who've had some educational challenges, this is maybe a little intimidating or, or might feel like, you know, beyond them. What would you say to folks who are just beginning to think in terms of using words with, with some intentionality? I have had people ask if the book Caring for Words wasn't a little bit elitist or ask if, you know, is, is this an argument for standard English? And it isn't really. I think there's something to be gained from learning the grammar of whatever language you inhabit. But for instance, if you think about rap or some of the poetry that comes out of street culture or some of what we can learn from indigenous usages like chant, there's a lot of language richness in any language environment. And a good linguist will probably tell you that every language is adequate to what its speakers need. So just because English has more words because we have this confluence of different tributaries of language through the various Romance and Teutonic languages and so on, the British Isles became a repository of many languages that commingled. So we have a lot of words 
which is lovely. It's a treasure to be appreciated. But languages that have fewer words by count also have their own ways of constructing circumlocutions or contextualizing things they want to say. So part of the value of learning another language is to recognize that every language is a window through which you see the world. And if we are only monolingual, then we really limit our notions about what's real or true. God is more vast and various than even the court of King James imagined. So there's some value in looking at multiple translations of scripture or seeing multiple performances of Shakespeare just to see how words keep living and changing and colloquializing. And I think colloquial speech and oral traditions that don't have a big body of written work are also rich repositories of language. So yeah, I think it's really important not to be too academic or too elitist about this, even as I maintain that some, some of us need to do this. Like, there need to be among us people who are great cello players or people who have spent hours at their lab benches um, staring at a virus. They're doing something the rest of us can't do. And so similarly, I think there need to be some of us who pay that kind of minute attention to language, the linguists, the poets, the teachers, that not everybody does and not everybody has to, but we can all offer back to the community something they can be enriched by. Do you speak other languages? Yeah. I mean, I, I read them. I haven't had a lot of occasion to speak them, but I lived in Austria for several years, so my German is reasonably good. And I read French and Spanish and a little Latin and little smatterings of Italian, and my <laughs> husband who went to seminary has made me love every sermon that brings up a Hebrew word. I've told him many times, there's a reason we send people to seminary to get ordained. And for me, a big piece of that reason is that you guys get to study Greek and Hebrew. And most of us don't. So ante up, I want to hear it. I want to know <laughs> what it said in Hebrew and why that matters. Yeah. What does that change for you, reading in languages besides English? Does it open up a different world for you? Oh, it does. You know, the syntax of a sentence uh, changes the order of thinking. For instance, in German, when the verb comes at the end of the clause or the sentence, people don't interrupt each other as much because, you know, why we haven't gotten to the verb yet. Hmm. So... There's a way in which you have to wait to gather the whole meaning of the, the clause or the sentence that you usually don't in English because the subject and verb are usually front-loaded. And so just the rhythm of hearing and registering and speaking is different, noticeably different if you really pay attention to how a conversation is conducted. A small example of that would be when I was living in Austria, I noticed they had six-digit phone numbers with three two-digit parts. Okay. So they'd say for a phone number, it's four and 20, six and 80, five and 30. And I asked a friend one time, you know, what do you do in your mind when you're just switching the little numbers? You say the four first and then the two. She was literally unaware of doing that. 
it puzzled her. The question puzzled her because four and 20 becomes one unit, four and 20, where we would say 24. And so just there's some little loop in your brain that is constructed differently because you hear differently, you group sounds and words differently. So that's one tiny example. But there is that practice of slight deferral of many things in German. There's the separable verb where part of the verb comes at the beginning and part of it comes at the end. And the whole verb is a kind of frame for the clause. So I don't want to get too technical here, but I, I will say that pace and rhythm and sound combinations and verb endings and where you get surprised and what you have to wait for, all of that is different at so many levels from as you move from one language to another. Just to learn one other language is to be humbled a little bit by the fact that there are things that are untranslatable. And if you live in that culture, you will see them. And if you live in this one, you might miss them. I was really moved by your section on felicity. Tell me if I'm getting this correct, that when a word goes out of use in a culture, it's representative of that that thing has gone out of use. Is, is, am I getting that accurate? Yeah, I chose felicity because I love the word. I think it's a lovely word. And it's a particular quality of happiness that I associate with Jane Austen, for instance. She uses felicity to describe the kind of reasoned thoughtful happiness that Eleanor Dashwood or Elizabeth Bennett want in their lives. They they don't want a happiness that they just fall into. They want a happiness that's, as it said in the old Book of Common Prayer, that's meet and right, that's fitting for their purposes and their values. And uh, I think of other words from that world that have gone out of common use. I think of how Mrs. Bennett is often vexed. And to be vexed is to be unhappy in a certain very particular way that's slightly different from irritated or annoyed or angry or impatient. It's got something of all of those in it. And I think about words like perplexed. What's the difference between perplexed or confused or muddled or anxious or puzzled? We have such a nice array of words to describe that experience. And I would suggest that there are small differences among them that are valuable to preserve. Because otherwise, I believe with some linguists that your emotional experience itself becomes kind of flattened and made cruder. George Orwell writes about this in Politics of the English Language. He says, we have crude behaviors because we have crude thoughts because our language is crude. But to suggest that the language comes first is to say, if you choose words more carefully, you're likely to behave in a similarly more careful manner. Do you like Noam Chomsky? Oh, I do indeed. Very much. And I'm so grateful he's still around and 
still speaking. There was a great interview on Democracy Now! with him just a couple of weeks ago that's worth looking up. He's 90, what, 95 now. Could you help folks understand a little about his contribution to uh, thinking about language? You know, I don't, I don't know that I know his him as a linguist well enough to do a very good job of that. These days, I listen to his his commentary on the political scene more than I listen to him as a linguist because that's where he's brought many of his concerns. But to listen to him speak really is to listen to someone who understands what he calls the deep structures of not only language, but the deep structures of government, the deep structures of public discourse, and the ways in which we uh, construct and communicate our shared reality to each other. So I think that what I hang on to from him is that understanding of how uh, conversation structures life, that public discourse the public discourse we inhabit is inseparable from the institutions we are attempting to define and um, maintain or change. I remember hearing a quote from him years ago, a question he'd answered where someone asked him about going on television programs. And, and he made this reference of kind of, why would I want to do that? If you can't make your point in a few moments, then nobody wants to hear it. And, and it was just so very matter of fact, like, that's just a horrible forum to express ideas. Well, because it, it does hurry you along. And I think when you're on public media, it's hard to allow those spaces I was talking about. If, you, if they become defined as dead space or dead time, then a pause becomes a little uneasy. But I also think that uh, the immediacy of the media, the fact that you're right there and you are in performative mode, means that it's more difficult to, to take the time it takes to craft something, put it in writing, let it be read and reflected upon, and then brought into public conversation. Uh, Chris Hedges, who is another contemporary writer for whom and political analyst for whom I have tremendous respect, has written a book about the consequences of the uh, attrition of literacy in American culture. And he is very clear about connecting literacy with morality or moral behavior. Not that you are less moral if you are less literate, if, as a people, we don't attend to the, we don't read and write with significant care, then, as George Orwell said, our behavior becomes cruder. And I think we've witnessed a lot of that over the last four to ten years. We tolerate a lot more bad linguistic behavior in public. And the way the public buys into simplistic slogans is so troubling. And you mentioned something before about if you can't say it in a few sentences, clearly, why would you go blathering on, more or less? But I think the few sentences thing is different from the soundbite. I think what Chomsky was getting at in what you quoted was, if you can't 
be clear enough to go to the very heart of the thing and to find what's at the center and move outward from that, then you need to think a little bit more about what is at the heart of what you're hoping to convey. So identifying what is my core point, if I only had one sentence to say, what would that be? That's a really good discipline. We tried that for a while with one of the kids when she was having a hard time and we were feeling as though she wasn't going to listen to very much of what we had to say. This was in her adolescence. We practiced, you know, if we had one sentence to say to her before she decides she needs to leave, what would she be likely to hear? And that has been a lasting practice for me to think, well, if, if there's one sentence I want to make sure gets said in this class hour or in this conversation, what would that be? And then you can move outward and you can elaborate and you can rephrase it and you can play with it. But to know what the one sentence might be is helpful. What's your one sentence about the book? Words matter more than we imagine. There you go. They matter in more ways than we imagine. And they're not just vessels for transporting a thought from one person to another. They are the thought. It's interesting. I remember years ago, a young woman coming to office hours when I was teaching The Scarlet Letter, which is, by the way, one of my very favorite books, and it's taught way too early. And we could do a whole other interview on The Scarlet Letter and why that's the case. But <laughs> she came in and she said, you know, I like this story, but it's just hard to get it because through all the words. And I remember what I said was, the words are the story. And particularly for Hawthorne, I think that's true. I think he was very concerned with the letter and what letters construct and that they are a world unto themselves. But it was so interesting that she felt that the story was something that the words words were a thicket separating her from. Right. It's a transmission of ideas rather than it, it being the... That the word is the thing, which yeah. I learned from Hebrew, my husband's Hebrew, that dabar in Hebrew means both word and thing. Hmm. And that's an important hmm. thing. When you speak a word, you put something out into the world. It's a thing out there now. And it will have action and reaction consequences. There's a kind of physics to it all, even hmm. in terms of the energy that it puts into the room. Yeah, that's right. What gives you hope in our culture today connected to words? I so appreciate people who do care for the conversation. You know, I think I pointed out in the book somewhere that one ancient meaning of conversation was to walk with, to converse. And those who are preserving a level of public conversation that calls us all into a more thoughtful way of construing the problems we have to reckon with. That gives me hope. It gives me hope when I hear young people who are so often these days out in a place of protest because their very lives depend on it. Greta Thunberg's an obvious example, or Emma, I can't remember her last name, but the young woman who spoke so forcefully after the Parkland shootings in yeah, Florida, or people who are impassioned about climate change or voting rights or um, 
calling corporate crime to account or just speaking as the rising generation about what their story is going to have to be. It's going to have to be a story of radical recovery and revision and re-envisioning of the way we do things, our institutions, our ways of caring for the earth, our ways of caring for each other. It's a huge task. And so when I see not only the level of passion, but how articulate some of these folks are because that impassioned care for the world and each other drives them, that gives me hope. There's a a book by George Steiner, who is one of my favorite writers. He was a philologist. and I don't know what that is. Well, it's closely related to linguistics. Tolkien was a philologist. So basically, it's a, it's a scholar of language and language structures. Slightly different from what we now call a linguist. It's an older term. But Steiner spoke 15 languages quite fluently. And so he conducted his whole broad, rich intellectual life through the lens of language. Um, And he has a book that includes a number of his essays, all of which more or less focus on language and story, and it's called No Passion Spent. (laughs) And I'm not even sure where the phrase comes from, but I love that, that, uh, that we spend our passions in the places that come to matter to us most deeply. And so to find words, even simple ones that convey that passion is a task that some of us need to keep honoring. And you know how Michelle Obama, I think, was the one that kept coming up saying, when they go low, we go high, which is to say, I'm not going to sink to the level of people who are just mudslinging. But I also think that when public discourse becomes sloppy and stupid and tiresome and repetitive and slogan-ridden and vulgar, to answer at a different level and to come in with a more nuanced, more thoughtful, more patient, um, more inventive, and in that sense, more hopeful, construction of what it is we're talking about is a way of staying in a place of invitation, inviting people to a richer way of pausing over and understanding what we care about. Love? What about it? I mean, what I was hearing in that was as a way to love, to Mm -hmm. to love others, to love what's good and right. Yes. Well, that sort of takes me back to where we began, which is how loved I felt in This family that had its own tensions, but as a child, to be among people who would tell stories, kindly correct my grammar or suggest other ways of putting things I had said or ask me the next question or approve of a poem I had written and take time to read it or listen to a whole sentence and invite me to say more. All of that is a way of being loved. Being in conversation is the way of being in an, a love exchange. It's a love feast, a good conversation is. Yeah. 
And for me in writing, taking the time to really work with a sentence or an idea as a way of loving others, right? They're giving me their time. So to be as precise and beautiful in that feels like neighbor love. My oldest grandson did a thing for a while that I love that he did, and I love that his mother let him do it. But he started the habit of collecting quotes from here and there out of things he was reading, and she let him write them all over his wall. So for a while, (laughs) he had a whole wall full of, you know, just one or two line quotations from things. But it just delighted me that he wanted to do that and that somehow the way people put things mattered to him enough to copy them down and keep them in front of him. What a sweet piece of education that is. And I think about how often you come across a phrase or a sentence and you just want to put it on your wall for a while. Live with it a little bit. Live with it. Hear the words again. I think about, often I ask groups of people, what's just a line from a poem or a hymn or a song that has stayed with you? And it's so interesting to hear everybody has them and to hear what has stayed with people. And sometimes that question brings tears. Just, this has mattered to me so much. I remember when I was really needing to move myself out of one professional situation into another. I felt a kind of weariness that made me feel like, you know, the spirit is moving me to a new place, and I don't know exactly how to make this transition. But a line that kept coming to me was that simple line from Robert Frost's poem, After Apple Picking, where he talks about there were 10,000 fruit to touch, cherish in hand, and not let fall. It always made me think about how many students pass through your life when you're a teacher, and you cherish each one of them, and you don't want them to fall. But then the line that came to me at that transition point was, but I have had enough of apple picking now. I am tired of the great harvest I myself desired. And it it's such a... <laughs> gracious way of acknowledging that it's time to lay this task down and move into a new season of life. I valued this and it mattered and and I can let it go. I was called to it and I'm called somewhere else now. That's good. Marilyn, it's a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much. That's completely mutual. Thank you also. And that was Marilyn McIntyre, author of 18 books, including Caring for Words in a Culture of Lies. You can find out more about Marilyn and her work at her website, marilynmcintyre.com. That's Marilyn, M-C-E-N-T-Y-R-E dot com. We'll put a link in the show notes. And this week on our website, we'll be running an article by Marilyn. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast. This work's made possible by the generosity of donors like you. Thank you. You can support Renovare and this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find a collection of thoughtfully curated articles, podcasts, webinars, online classes, as well as information on our events and our institute, at our website, renovare.org. 
This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. And until next time, be well, friends. Be well.